Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So on this special Sunday of Advent uh, joy and peace, let's forget about what a gallon of gas costs for a moment. What's up with the price of bacon? As of last September, it was up 28% over the same time last year. The highest it's been in 40 years, as high as 11.99 a pound at Vaughn's last week. Take one guess. COVID. The current administration is gearing up to go after all things price fixing and maybe with a good cause. There are only about three major pork product producers in the United States, uh, so it's kind of light on competition. But you can't forget COVID. The U.S. pork supply has been hit hard by pandemic-related supply chain issues. First, when people saw toilet paper flying off the shelves, they panicked and started hoarding bacon. <laughs> Seriously. Comfort food, maybe. I, I don't know. Um, by the time the farmers geared up to produce more, meat processing plants got hit with COVID and had to shut down. Now, with too many pigs and not a way to, not any way to, or enough ways anyway, to get them turned into bacon, uh, a lot of this part of the supply chain had to be euthanized. So they cut back on the number of pigs being raised, just in time for the vaccine and processing plants reopening. And that 2% reduction of livestock simply can't meet an unprecedented demand for supply. That creates inflation, and the balance between the two isn't expected to balance out again until sometime after mid-2022. Can we be happy about that? Paul says we can. Rejoice in the Lord always, he said, even in thick sliced bacon at a dollar a slice. <laughs> Actually, people have been rejoicing about bacon for centuries. We inherited a saying from our ancestors, didn't we? Bring home the bacon. Today, that means being able to work to supply your family's needs, and that's always a great reason to rejoice. But there's a church connection to that saying's origin. Back in the 12th century, a small congregation in the village of Dunmo, England, was looking for ways to improve marital harmony. What they came up with is a real tribute to practical decision-making. Any man who could swear before God and the church's members that he hadn't argued with his wife for at least a year and a day was rewarded with a side of bacon. Now, if we can assume that every man who received the grand prize was telling the truth, he not only got a minimum of 366 days of wedded bliss, but a slab of pork awesomeness to take home at the end of it, <laughs> proving that bacon truly is a gift from God and deserves a place in this message. Of course, all kidding aside, uh, the cost of bacon is the least of our worries and probably the, the uh, least of our reasons not to be joyful on this Sunday of joy. There's a lingering pandemic. There was another school shooting last week in the news, a rash of home invasion robberies and tornadoes and even fallout from COVID restrictions that, uh, more fallout really, that's resulting in levels of depression and anxiety uh, among our children like we've never seen before. And you might not think our poor little pink candle of joy over there could stand a chance against all that darkness. But its light represents the light of Christ who has come into the world, a light that promises to overpower the darkness. If we would only remember to remember that, you know, our lives and our world could change. We'll be singing joy to the world pretty soon, but a lot of people in the world won't have a very joyful Christmas this year, in many ways due to the joyless things we hear about every day in the news. And it's always harder for us to trust God's promises when those joyless things hit close to home. 
at those times, even the small things can seem like big things when they, when they touch our lives. Bad news from the doctor, a sudden unexpected loss of a friend or loved one, being laid off or laid low maybe uh, in your job through no fault of your own. They can all lead to a crisis of faith, cast a shadow over our own candle of joy that by faith is shining within. And you might remember that uh, back when, uh, after Mother Teresa's death, I think it was 1997, private correspondence was made public that the saint of the gutters in Calcutta had experienced her own struggles. Uh, in a letter to her spiritual confidant, the Reverend Michael Vanderpeet, she wrote of a different Christ, an absent one. She said, Jesus has a very special love for you, but as for me, the silence and emptiness is so great that I look and do not see, listen and do not hear. The tongue moves in prayer but does not speak. I want you to pray for me that I let him have a free hand. <clears throat> People worried that uh, at that news, her fast track toward sainthood might be delayed or even derailed. But she was canonized St. Teresa of Calcutta right on schedule by Pope Francis in September of 2016. It turned out that her dark period may have actually helped her cause by making her even more worthy. That's good news for us, maybe. Uh, certainly good news for John the Baptist this morning. It simply means that we're all prone to have our own dark moments of faith, wondering aloud from our own prisons, whatever they may be. Jesus, is it true? You know, are you the one? Times when we feel discouraged or confused or disillusioned. You know, times when you catch yourself second-guessing your choices in life, the roads you traveled, the forks you chose, you know, where you've been and where you are. It means we're in pretty good company and not at all out of favor with God. New believers in crisis we can understand. A newfound faith can be a fragile thing. New Christians ought to come with a stamp on their foreheads that says, you know, great expectations, handle with care. But many of us are not newcomers to the faith, nor was Mother Teresa. John the Baptist was the prophet of prophecy. Uh, Malachi 3.1 in the Old Testament says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 430 years or so later, along comes John. And Jesus ties that prophecy to the Baptist in our lesson this morning. John was a miracle child of the priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, uh, born to them against all odds in their old age. He was a child born of God's promise. Uh, through his angel, uh, Gabriel, God revealed to Zechariah, uh, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn away, from, uh, turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Talk about your great expectations, right? At his birth, his father prophesied about him, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. And then Luke tells us that the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. He would fulfill not only the prophecies, but everyone's highest hopes about the promised Savior. Before his uh, cousin Jesus began his own ministry, John was already hard at work on his. 
calling people to repentance, making paths straight by preparing hearts to receive the coming king, the very son of God. He was so well known and so popular, he was often mistaken for the Messiah himself. But he knew who Jesus was. He once proclaimed as Jesus walked by, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John was around for Jesus' very early ministry. Some of his own disciples would become disciples of Jesus later on, but uh, no more. In our lesson today, John is sitting in prison. Fearless in his call to repentance, he turned a righteous eye toward Herod Antipas. That was the son of Herod the Great that uh, is mentioned in our uh, Christmas story about Jesus' birth. Now, Antipas was a, a tetrarch, or the, the ruler of that particular region. Antipas had been married to the daughter of another king, but had fallen in love with his half-brother's wife Herodias while he was staying with them in Rome. Two divorces and one war later, they were a couple. The whole situation violated Jewish law, and John called Herod to task over it. Now, never one to shy away from killing an enemy, John presented a special problem for Antipas, though. See, he suspected, and certainly the people believed, that John was a great prophet. And fearing riots, if he killed him, John was sent to prison instead. You know, prison in those days was a place where people went into and rarely came back out of. These days, you might go to prison in the morning and be back on the street for lunch. But back then, there was no TV, no rights, no three squares, no privileges, except maybe a visitation from time to time. And John's disciples did continue to keep in touch with him. And through them, he surely heard stories about how Jesus' ministry was going, the miracles, the healings. Uh, and, and he was, surely would long for the day that Jesus would come to bust him loose with one of those miracles so he could see it all for himself. But the days soon turned into weeks, and then the weeks into months. And by the time of our lesson this morning, John has been in prison for a year or more, wasting away unable to do what he'd been born and called to do. The man who had lived his entire life in the open air of the wilderness languished in a small, dark prison cell. Put yourself in that cell with John for a moment as the days and the months dragged on. You know, where was his cousin? He must have been wondering. Why hadn't Jesus come to free him? He'd even said that he came to set prisoners free. And who was more captive than John? Hadn't John himself been told by God to preach that the axe is, being, is laid to the root of the tree? Wasn't that exactly what he was doing when, well, that, that, and put him into this place in prison to begin with? And so after all this time seemingly forgotten, he sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, point blank, are you the one who was to come? Or shall we look for another? Is it true? Is that a result of sour grapes, frustration, doubt, total disbelief maybe? You know, a first reading of the lesson would, would lead you to think that John was experiencing what we all have, a crisis of faith brought on by a difficult situation. But that's just one possibility. Think a little harder. You know, this wasn't going to end well for John. His future held martyrdom, but his purpose had been fulfilled. His happy ending would come in the next life. And sometimes that's the way it happens. If it happens to you, I think once you get there, you'll wonder what all the fuss was about. So maybe he was sending his followers so they could never discover for themselves the joy of knowing Jesus and the hope he was bringing to thousands of people. 
What if he knew these questions were the ones his own disciples were asking? What if he sent them to Jesus to see and hear the truth for themselves, for their benefit, not for his? When they found Jesus, he invited them to stick around for a while to watch and listen. Now, what news did they take back to John? What did Jesus confirm? The fulfillment of all the prophecies. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. This was just around the time when Jesus had brought a widow's son from the village of Nain back from the dead. Now, John would know the signs, but John already knew the truth. Now his disciples did too. There's always reason to rejoice for, for the followers of Jesus Christ. If we'll just, just turn to him in our own prison moments. Even before Jesus first arrived, faithful people had been turning to the promised Savior for hope and joy. King David, the Old Testament, hundreds of years before, had his own prison moments. He had a lot of them. And we got a lot of great psalms uh, as a product of those moments. Listen to a little bit of Psalm 57 from a time David was hiding in a cave uh, from King Saul. Uh, King was, was threatened, felt threatened by David, and he set out to kill him. David says to God, show me your favor, God, show me your favor. I go to you for safety. I will find safety in the shadow of your wings. There I will stay until the danger is gone. I cry out to God most high. I cry out to God, and he carries out his plan for me. He answers from heaven and saves me. Go to the source with your tears, with your fears, with your questions, even with your great expectations. Now, Jesus and John were walking similar paths toward the same end, but only Jesus had the whole picture. Only Jesus could see the cross and the empty tomb somewhere in the distance. John knew everything he needed to know to, to, to finish his, fulfill his purpose, but he didn't know everything. Before long, he would, though, because he'd be in heaven himself with the angels. But his martyr's death may have inspired more people to turn to Jesus than a longer life ever could have. Going to the source reminds us that every day can be a day of joy and contentment for a believer. The Apostle Paul this morning is writing from a prison in Rome. And he writes that we're to rejoice in the Lord always. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what? He says, and then uh, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Think about that. On the 39th day of the downpour, do you think that Noah went up on the deck of the ark and thanked God for the fresh rain falling on his face while he, he drifted helplessly in the flood? I don't know. You know, being thankful in everything doesn't mean putting on an act and, and uh, you know, pretending everything's okay, being persistently cheery, come what may. But being thankful in everything does mean believing that the guiding hand of God is constantly present. There's always joy to be found in the moment for a believer. Here's a little different example, and I bet you never thought about it, and I bet this prison has touched all our lives in one way or another. It's from a New York Times blog written by Robert Leloux. It's called Finding Joy in Alzheimer's. In it, he quotes his grandmother, Joanne, who once remarked, the wonderful thing about Alzheimer's is that you always live in the moment. 
Well, the author maintains that it turned out to be much more than just a, a witty remark. He says, through the haze of our grief, my grandfather Alfred and I began noticing that, along with her memories, Joanne's grudges, hurt feelings, worries, and regrets were disappearing. In fact, within a year, she seemed happier than ever, more present and at peace. Like King Lear, Joanne, as Joanne lost reason, she gained clarity. As with Lear, her dementia provided her the chance to meet her estranged daughter, my mother, for the first time again. Their chronic conflict had been among my, the great sorrows of my life, but suddenly the past was, quite literally, forgotten. And here's the lesson he drew from it all. <clears throat> my grandmother showed me that we're more than just the sum of our memories. She taught me the vital importance of forgetting, and that sometimes it's only our commitment to remembering that prevents us from accepting the love and peace that surrounds us. Isn't that great insight? Now talk about that love and peace. Paul, Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. It's, it's almost like he knows people will need to be reminded someday that we have no idea what kind of spiritual gain might be waiting for us in our troubles. You know, we still have a hard time letting go of our worries, and we may not always be able to stop remembering those, those dark corners of our past. But we can rest in Paul's own testimony that God really does hear our prayers. And we can take comfort from the fact that there really is a peace out there, a gift of peace from God that guards our hearts and minds, even if at the moment it might seem far away. Paul isn't asking us to do the impossible this morning. He's telling us that a believer's joy is independent of any situational distress because real, lasting joy is rooted in the ongoing presence of Christ in our lives. The Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day, suffered and died to take away all our sins on Good Friday, and rose victorious on Easter morning so that we'd have nothing to worry about in life compared with the joy waiting for us in heaven. The joy that actually spills over into this life sometimes when we need it most. The joy he earned for us at such a great cost. Remember every single day that your name is written in God's book of life, that God knows you, that he adopted you into his family the day you were baptized, that God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. No one is, whose name is written in God's book of life will be lost on the day of judgment unless they want to be. We have that assurance from God himself. And so rejoice, Paul says. Now why not? Jesus has overcome the world. You know, there's a much better one waiting. The Lord is at hand. That's our Advent theme, isn't it? Rejoice in the Lord always. God's love and joy and peace is even better than bacon. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding Keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive your gift.